Welcome to Get Your Book Done. I'm your host, Christine Closer, a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling author, award-winning publisher, and book writing coach to thousands. I love helping aspiring nonfiction authors write, publish, and promote their best books because there's nothing more powerful than writing a book to transform your life, your readers' lives, your business, and ultimately the world with your message. So let's get started. Welcome to today's episode where I have Neil Gordon with me and we'll be talking about how to become a movement maker. And if you're a transformational author, which you are, if you're here in my world, like you are someone who is here to make a difference, to have an impact, to create your own movement of the people that you're here to serve and help on their journey in this very um, interesting and expansive and evolving life that we're living right now on planet earth. So Um, That's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we do that, in order to truly become a movement maker, like authorship is a part of that journey. So if you are listening right now and you have not yet registered for my live one day transformational author experience virtual event coming up October 30th, 2021, please go secure your seat now, which you can do by going to gybdpodcast.com. Again, the GYBD is short for get your book done, gybdpodcast.com. And that will take you directly to our podcast resource, which for this show um, and the last couple of shows has really been all about the transformational author experience. I only do this live virtual one day workshop event, one day of the year. And it is coming up this month. And trust me, you do not want to miss it because we are going to be talking about writing, publishing, and marketing your transformational book. We're going to cover it all that day from a really powerful place of like, how can we make a big difference in the world through these books that we want to help you write and talk about making a difference in the world. Oh my goodness. That brings me to our guest, Neil Gordon. Um, Like I said, we're talking today about how to become a movement maker And Neil Gordon helps experts become the face of a movement. He works with executives, influencers, and thought leaders, and has helped them get six-figure book advances, be seen on shows like Ellen and Dr. Oz, and double their speaking fees. Now, prior to becoming a communications expert, he worked on the editorial staff of Penguin Random House. I'm sure all of you have heard of that publishing company, where he worked with New York Times bestselling authors. He's been featured on Forbes, Fortune, Inc.com, and NBC Palm Springs, and is a VIP contributor for Entrepreneur. So we are delighted, Neil, to have you here today. Thank you and welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Christina. Christine, excuse me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I am delighted. And, you know, it's interesting because most everyone, like the question I always ask at the beginning of my podcast is like, how did you land an authorship? Like, how did you become an author? What was the journey? When did it start? When did that spark happen? Mm -hmm. Um, Was it a lightning bolt moment and all of these sorts of things? But for you, you're actually one of the, um, definitely not the majority of the guests that I've had on that are not Mm -hmm. yet a published author under your own name, but Mm -hmm. you have written several ghostwritten books. And obviously you just heard me talk about how you worked for, you know, major, um, big publisher, Penguin Random House. How did you land, I'll say in the industry of authorship and publishing? Just curious the journey in a nutshell, because it could take all the full half hour. Oh, but yeah. well, we talk see, about I'm, other I'm stuff 44. Too. <laughs> if you want a minute by minute play, then we're going to be here for quite a while. Yeah. What it really comes down to Christine is that I 
as opposed to many of my fellow editorial assistants, assistant editors, and other lower level editorial people who find their way working their way up the, the publishing ladder. So while they were all these pedigree college English literature major types who got 800 on their SATs and all of that, I was kind of the opposite in that I hated reading growing up. And the first time I took the SATs, I tanked my verbal score. I got a 330, which put me in like the fifth percentile, like 95% of all the people who took the SATs that year did better than I did on verbal. And so how do we get from that to working with New York Times bestselling authors? Well, when I first moved to New York in, when I was 22, right after I graduated from college, having basically read nothing, none of my assigned reading and only a couple of light, not, uh, light science fiction books, honestly, for leisure at that point, I started to read books because I needed an escape from the New York City subway system because it was loud and crowded and dirty and all of that. And I discovered books one particular book was called A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. And it was a novel, even though I wound up in the nonfiction world, that was a work of fiction, that because of some of the ways it challenged my ideas around what was possible based on what the main character went through in that story, I started challenging all of my notions. My whole worldview became shattered. And I went through this very typical 20-something what's-it-all-mean kind of phase. But the reason why that's significant is that it spurred on a tremendous amount of curiosity around how the language, and in this case, the written word, could have such a profound impact on me. And so a couple of years of that investigation landed me my job at Penguin. And that was it. That set me on the path. Wow, what an amazing story. So for all of you who feel like, well, I wasn't a smart student, I didn't master English, you know, I got a D and red marks all over that paper when I was in eighth grade or whatever grade it might have been. Right. Um, there you have it, like 95% of people did better on verbal than Neil. And boom, he was the one who landed the job at Penguin, right? Or Random House back, back um, you know, earlier in your career. So, right. you know, Right. I don't want to say it like in any sort of um, demeaning sort of way, but there really is hope for everyone. Like you don't have to be a brilliant person. You don't have to be a masterful, you know, commander of the English language in written form. Um, and, you know, I just, I feel like that's what you're giving everyone permission to do it, whether they mastered, you know, the English language and sentence structure and commas and all that vocabulary, everything um, or not like authorship is still possible for you. Um, yeah, yeah. I like to say, Christine, that the the test for a book that's truly well written is one that I can actually get through. And so, if it's, it's like so, like some of my deficiencies as a reader, going way back, I mean, I'm obviously much more proficient now than I was as a as a 16 year old. But still, if like you can really keep me engaged, that I can just breeze through the book, then you're good. Then everyone's going to be able to read it. And so, it just becomes a matter of taking what we would originally perceive as a weakness and really turning that on its end and turning it into a strength. Beautiful. And it's that engagement, I would imagine, that is part of what helps someone become a movement maker, right? right. If you're writing a book that's putting people to sleep, um, you know, you're probably not going to be this face of a movement, if you will, as Neil House people really do. So what would you say, you know, what are some of the first steps that someone needs to be looking at and considering in order to, you know, become that kind of engaging author and engaging leader that can become, you know, the face and the energy and the heart and soul behind whatever their, you know, movement is? 
I like to think about the example of the ice bucket challenge for ALS back in the 2010s. This is probably going back six, seven, eight years now. And that went on to raise a tremendous amount of money for ALS. And the truth of the matter is, is I, I don't even know that half the people who participated in the challenge even knew what it was for, but people would be tagged by someone, one of their friends, and they would pour ice water on their head and then tag a few other people. And so it just took off. And then millions of people started doing the ice bucket challenge. And that very clearly became a movement. That was a thing that just dominated people's social media for months that year. And, and again, it raised all these millions of dollars for a disease that has really been brutal for so many people for so long. What made it happen is to circle back to your question, Christine, like what are the initial steps or what kind of mindset is, will we benefit from putting ourselves in to begin that movement? The thing that gets an idea to become a movement very simply is the empowerment others feel in response to it. Mm. And that's why, that's why the Ice Bucket Challenge works so well is because people might not have, they might've been daunted by taking on Lou Gehrig's disease. I mean, it was such a debilitating illness and it was just, it's just invariably this death sentence. And if you say we need to solve the problem of ALS, would people have donated? Probably not because, or at least not as much because they didn't feel empowered by that possibility. But pouring water on their heads and putting it on social media and tagging a few friends, that's what people felt empowered to do. And there are many examples we can look at in general, but when we look at this in terms of, let's say, authorship, when somebody wants my help on a book, for example, the first question I ask isn't what's your book about? It's what is going to be the main takeaway or the impact of your reader once they finish reading your book? What is, what are they going, essentially what I'm asking is what is the empowerment they're going to feel from having read your book so as to meaningfully create change in their lives? And that's the thing that turns something into a movement is the empowerment others feel. Yes. And in, in my world, you know, the second question, not the first, but the second question I make every single one of my clients in our get your book done program, no matter what level of the program they're in. Mm -hmm. um, the second question I have them all answer is what is the transformation that you want right. for your reader? Right. Right. Like really connecting, not just, oh, I'm going to share some information and help. Like, no, no, no. When that reader is done reading your book and they're holding it in their hands and their life has been impacted in some way. Like, what are they thanking you for? What's different? How are they changed? What's possible? What is that transformation? And I don't think any author should be writing a book unless they can really clearly identify that transformation, that change, right. you know, the benefit, the takeaway that they want for their readers. So um, we're definitely right smack dab aligned there. Like I said, second question I ask, first question you ask, close enough. Yeah, <laughs> um, well, but it's yeah. all part of the same idea, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that's so important because you said, um, I just, I want to make sure I got it right because I'm not sure I was writing quickly enough, but you said a movement is really, it really happens from the empowerment that someone feels being a part of it. Is that what you said in the second half? The empowerment it, someone feels. The, the, the language, the language I use precisely is 
we turn an idea into a movement, or, or excuse me, an, an idea becomes a movement based on the empowerment others feel in response to it. The empowerment others feel in response to it. And if we go back to the earlier part of the episode, maybe I actually didn't quite precisely word it exactly that way, but I feel just as aligned with what I just said as the first time, if it happens to deviate to any of our listeners. Yeah, it just, it was so powerful. I'm like, wait, did I catch that exactly as I was supposed to catch it? So I'm glad yeah. I asked because yeah, yeah, yeah. an idea becomes movement by the le- the depth of empowerment that someone feels in response to it. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So you can see that it's not about like having to do massive, heavy lifting. Um, It's more about like the essence of what is this really about and how is it going to empower people um, around around the message, which is very inspiring. Mm -hmm. So um, when you work with authors... Yeah. And they are an author who, you know, has a big message to share. They're really clear on the transformation of the difference, the impact they want their book to have on their readers' lives. Um, are there any mistakes or uh, challenges or pitfalls that you see those authors kind of falling into on that journey of, you know, having their idea become a movement? What so many authors do, and authors as a subset of experts or thought leaders or others who would possibly be writing a book and publishing a book and also speaking and appearing on podcasts like this and anything else that comes down to sharing a message with the world, the larger mistake they make is that they believe that the information they have is the primary agent of that empowerment we were just talking about. They, they know they want to have an impact. They're on board with that larger idea. And then what they do is what we could call the show up and throw up in that they're just going to vomit out as much information as possible, provide as many steps or tips or components of their construct, which in the context of a book are all very necessary for fleshing out a book. You have this, let's say it's a a 12 chapter book and you write out all 12 of these chapters with all of these exercises. And this is specifically in the nonfiction prescriptive how-to world, of course. You wind up providing all of this information, but they, what they think is that that is the key to empowering others, that n- the knowledge is the primary thing. Now, it fits into the bigger picture, but the mistake, this, it, this is a mistake, I, I should say, because knowledge isn't the main thing that leads to people participating in this work for themselves. And so to illustrate this, we could look at the story of the little engine that could, where the train breaks down on one side of the mountain. And they're like, how are we going to get this train over the mountain so we can get to all the little girls and boys? And a sleek, shiny engine train comes along. And they say, oh, Mr. Engine, would you please take this train over the mountain? And he says, nope, I'm too busy. I don't have the time. And an old rusty train engine comes along. And they say, oh, Mr. Engine, would you please take this train over the mountain? And they say, he says, nope, I'm too old and tired. I don't have the energy. And then a little blue engine comes along. They say, will you take this train over the mountain? She says, sure. She very famously says, I think I can. I think, think I, I can. can. I think I can. Yeah. Right, right. And then she makes it over. She was empowered in a way that the other two engines were not. And it wasn't because she knew more, right? Arguably, the old engine probably knew more than the other two combined. But she made it over. She says, I think I can. I think I can. Because, or more precisely, 
we could say that she believed she could. And so the thing that empowered her wasn't her knowledge. It was the belief that change was possible, that she could get to the other side. People are empowered, not by that which they know is true, but rather that which they believe is possible. And so to circle back, all the way back, you know, back in the dark ages, Christine, when you asked me this lovely question, <laughs> the answer is really that the mistake they make is that they are trying to cram knowledge instead of incite a different belief. Say that again. I want to make sure everyone gets that. The mistake that authors and every other kind of thought, not every, forgive me, I misspoke, but many other thought leaders are making is that they think they need to provide knowledge when really they need to incite a new belief. And I think we all know, especially I think our world today is a pretty good example of um, how firm people can stand in their beliefs one way or the other. And um, potentially how unaccepting people are sometimes of another person's belief. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's really difficult to get someone to change their behavior or change their thinking if the belief isn't, isn't changed. So I'm just curious um, from your perspective, like how, like, is, is, is there some wisdom advice uh, that you can share that would help people begin to understand some of the components to helping someone shift a belief, because I, I can see that potential. Like if you can get someone to shift a belief and believe, you know, in alignment with your belief, like that is just fuel for this movement. It's fuel for your message. It's fuel for the impact that you're here to have in the world. But we all know that like beliefs are beliefs are pretty strong, you know, mm -hmm. consciously and mm -hmm. unconsciously strong. And unconsciously. So just any, um, any wisdom, on that piece of um, what you just said. A number of years ago, I was volunteering. I, I live in New York now, but I used to live in LA and I was volunteering at the children's hospital there. And at that particular hospital, they have a unique program that gifts books to children staying at the hospital and then sends volunteers to read bedsides with them. And they also have a special therapeutic library where they work with the social workers to find books that are helping them to overcome obstacles around poor health. And the founder of the program, she's no longer there, but the founder of the program was also the program director at the time and the person I reported to as a volunteer. And one day I showed up for my shift and she was all flustered because she needed to speak for 10 minutes in front of a group of employees who sponsored the hospital uh, employees of a company that sponsored the hospital, I should say. And she gave talks like these 10 minute talks all the time. And she was dreading the talk because usually when she got up and spoke about the program, people would just kind of glaze over. And, and then at the end, they just do nothing more than politely clap. And she just wondered why was she even giving these talks? Because it was just so such a valuable program but people seem so uninterested. And she didn't understand it because we saw firsthand what can happen when a child got a book and had a bedside reader and all the things, right? And so I show up for the shift and I get word from someone else working 
for the program that day that she was all flustered. So I went over to her and said, hey, I heard you have a talk today. Would you like to go through what you're gonna say? And she says, yes. And we, we, we discussed what she was gonna say and we worked out what, how that would take shape. And I sent her on her way. She gave the talk and I saw her that afternoon. I asked her how it went. She said that people were held wrapped at attention from the moment she started speaking. And at the end, instead of just politely clapping, they rushed up to her with business cards, multiple people. And one of them even invited her to apply for a grant. Hmm. Okay. Now, the conversation we had that morning only lasted two minutes. What I haven't told you yet is that prior to that day, she had engaged me for a brief consult to work out her messaging because she had been on TV several weeks prior to that day. And so she just needed to get her thoughts across in a very short amount of time. But because of the clarity we had, I was able to help her in very little time to completely restructure that 10 minutes. But the larger point to make, Christine, in response to what you asked, which is about what kind of wisdom can I potentially offer around inciting a different belief, that story demonstrates a pretty clear night and day, at least in my estimation, a clear night and day transformation between people who didn't believe that the program had value because they just politely clap and move on with their day. And then who absolutely believe they were empowered by the end of that 10 minutes because they wanted to be in touch and give her money and stuff, right? So the thing that made all of that possible, including me being able to help her in only two minutes was a technique that's actually overlooked by most people who are authors, who are speakers, who appear on these kinds of podcasts and the like. It's a technique that Earlier in our conversation today, you, you asked me to repeat things, repeat them because you really resonated and you wanted people to hear them and you wanted to make sure you had written it down and all of that. So even just today, I applied the technique in our conversation and it had a real life impact, okay? And so it was very simple. I'll provide a specific example in her case in this particular story and then extrapolate from that the larger significance of the technique. Great. What we did prior to that day was to still all of the program's value down to a single sentence. And all it was, was literacy can heal. It was just a recipe for what made the entire program possible and made the entire program work. I call it a silver bullet and it's just a cause and effect sentence that when you take this action as in promoting literacy, you get this outcome as in having a healing power. And there's, there's like 46 of the 50 most popular TED Talks have this kind of sentence. And when you read a book on the Kindle that's had a lot of readers, it will aggregate the most highlighted passages in the book. And you see like Ed Catmull wrote the book, New York Times bestselling book, Creativity Inc. He's the co-founder of Pixar. And he writes about a quarter of the way into the book. He says, getting the team right is a necessary precursor to getting the ideas right. A cause and effect sentence. And mm. as soon as people read that, they highlight it. The last time I opened that on my Kindle, Christine, they had like that passage had like 9,000 highlights. And an, an even more widespread book called Sapiens by a man from Israel named Yuval Harari. He wrote this book a handful of years ago. And his silver bullet is 
large groups of strangers can cooperate when they believe in a common myth. You have all these strangers and you can't get them to cooperate. You get them to believe in a common myth and that's what gets them all to speak the same language. And the last time I checked, that one had, I think like 23 or 24,000 highlights. I mean, just crazy off the chart numbers because it's this cause and effect sentence. And what does that have to do with the wisdom of inciting that belief? And why did people rush up to my client at the end? Because that one sentence empowers others without any other context. It just leads to this light bulb moment. It was like, oh, I get it. And they start to get chills. They get the dopamine hit. And that creates a belief that change is possible. And that's what leads to everything else. Mm. And from there, like the snowball rolls down the hill, right? And gets exactly. bigger and bigger and has broader reach and bigger impact. And everyone's kind of aligned around something that they weren't forced to believe, right? Because there's a lot of, you know, in our world today, it's like, you need to believe this. No, you need to believe this. And everyone's trying to tell everyone else what they should believe rather than like the yard, larger kind of unifying, um, you know, truth, cause and effect mm -hmm. kind of truth that lets mm -hmm. people, no matter what their previous belief was, go like, oh yeah, that like, and feel something different inside of themselves when they connect with that new belief. And thus you can see how the movement begins. Exactly. Exactly. So helpful. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I trust this is helpful for you listening as well. When you think about your message and your journey of transformational authorship and you know, the movement maker that you want to become, whether that's, you know, moving millions of people or thousands of people or hundreds of people or dozens of people, right? The movement can look like whatever the movement is meant to look like for you. So before we wrap here, I mean, something I've heard you so much, um, you know, talk about not directly, but indirectly through their conversation today is the mm -hmm. power of words to communicate. And, you know, so many authors are, you know, also either are or want to be speakers. They want to use words in written language and in spoken language from the page mm -hmm. and the stage in order to be able to share their message. And I know that today you've got a great free resource um, around using your words through the power of speaking. And the, mm. the uh, link for that is over in the show notes for today. But would you say just a little bit about the speaker quiz you've made available for our listeners? What I see so many speakers do, and this is admittedly a, more applicable to a live presentation that we're coming back to as opposed to the virtual ones. It's similar concepts, but an even more precise use of what I'm about to say is applicable to live. And that is what a lot of speakers do is they get out on stage and they've been introduced, let's say by the host of the conference or something like that. And they say, oh, thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. And how about a nice round of applause for so-and-so who just introduced me, aren't they great? And all of that. And they visit with the audience and they ingratiate themselves to the audience. And it's a nice impulse to wanna to be liked and to wanna to get along with everyone. But the beginning of a talk is sort of like the start of a race in that there's this high point of tension right before the talk starts. And just like on your mark, get set. And then right before go, it's like, there's this tension. And by, by visiting and saying, oh, so nice to be here. You're dispelling that tension. Whereas if you just started with a story or some other immediately engaging, emotionally compelling thing, 
then you've got them. And frankly, that's how my client at the hospital threw people in. She just started with the story right away. And that can be a little intimidating just to start with something so emotionally significant right away. And so what the speaker quiz does is it tests you on what your personality is and it helps you to find a way to be super compelling on stage, but in a way that's aligned with, if you're a bit more shy or introverted, a little softer, and you feel, you see people like Tony Robbins are larger than life and you don't feel like you're like that, this helps, the quiz helps to validate your personality and give you ideas as to how to start a speech with that in mind. Or if you're kind of theatrical and, and goofy and stuff, then it does that for you as well. And other personality types as well. And so you can just take, answer a handful of questions, see what kind of speaker type you are, and then get some tips on how to engage the audience. Right Sounds really powerful. I think I'm going to go do that. There is a link yeah. over on the show notes. So please go over there. And, um, you know, I can't help think because I'm in the world of, you know, words on the page versus words on the stage. Mm. And I, as I'm hearing you talk, I can't think about how important I can't stop thinking about how important that is for writing too. Like if you want someone to read your book, like you have to open the introduction, the chapter, like every piece that you're opening inside the book, you want to start with a, a bang, if you will, start with something that draws them in. Like, don't take the first, you know, five paragraphs of your first chapter to get into something that's going to draw them. And I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, Neil, but I would imagine that if someone went and did that speaker quiz that there, it would part, it would kind of parlay and translate over to lift off in terms of words on the page with your, with your chapters accurate well, yeah certainly in terms of like some of my most successful my clients most successful book proposals to start right with a story the introduction i've heard editors comment on how much they loved how that opening story just really introduced the author to the reader so it's a nice little tip for writing your book especially the opening of the book in a truly compelling way instead of a high level abstract you can do that now in terms of the personalities one of the personalities is a kind of a mischief maker. And you could see certain TED speakers use kind of a mischievous quality in their speaking. And you could similarly just mess with the reader in a, in, in a way that would just keep them on their toes and be very engaging and interesting and probably really funny too. And so there's definitely crossover to the page as well. I find that most things that work on stage in some form or another can also work on the page as well. And that's something that I would love for our listeners to, to really think about that communication is communication because it's all about connecting with people. Brilliant. Thank you. I do have one more question for you sure. that I want to ask, but I do want to just make sure everyone remembers um, the link to that speaker quiz is over on the show notes. So please be sure to go ahead and um, do that. Like I said, I'm definitely going to go over and do that myself, um, especially considering that I've got my um, my one day transformational author experience coming up on the 30th yeah. of this month. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe I'll open differently because that, that's very different from how I usually open. So I'm going to go right. see and find out. Maybe you'll you know, if you if you go to go to gybdpodcast.com and secure your seat for that event. And then you can see if I took what uh, what Neil's talking about today and implemented it in my own training. That was an awesome way to work that. I love that so much. I want everyone to do exactly what Christine just said. <laughs> 
So there you have it. Anyway, all right. Last question is, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground and I know you're like an encyclopedia of wisdom and knowledge on this topic of, you know, creating a movement. I mean, you've worked with New York Times bestselling authors. You've ghostwritten books for some, you know, big, big books and authors out there that have done really well. So we could probably talk for a few days. Of course. But if there were just one thing, one thing, Neil, that you want, really want to make sure that every one of our listeners walks away with, from today's episode, what is that one thing that you feel like if, if nothing else, this walk away with this? What I see happening, especially in the way things have taken shape in the United States in particular with the polarization of ideas and everything else that's been going on is that more and more people are using communication as a way to either even just manipulate others or sometimes even weaponize their words. And alongside the expertise that all of our listeners have most likely spent a long time developing and all the value they have to provide around that knowledge, what I implore everyone listening to think about is how much different the world around them will be if they commit their communication to instead being an act of service that effective communication values the recipient over the sender and to make all of your decisions around your expertise and thought leadership around how these things can ultimately be an act of service. And I fundamentally believe that will lead to a shift in how the world takes shape. Mm. Well, amen to that. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears or goddess's ears or the universe's ears, whatever you believe in, um, may that be so. Um, in this world during our lifetime. Thank you Beautiful. for kind of bringing it to that place as we wrap up here. So Neil, just so grateful for the time we had together today, really a, a juicy, engaging conversation. Um, I'm sure for our listeners, but also for me personally, I'm like, wow, I took a page of notes. <laughs> um, hopefully y'all <laughs> listening to too. So, you know, I'm, I'm here learning as well. You know, I do these interviews um, for the podcast, but you know, I learn a lot from my guests as well. So really a pleasure to be with you. So thank you for your time today. Likewise, Christine, it's been an absolute pleasure. And to all of our listeners, of course, thanking you too for being here, um, for being engaged in this journey of transformational authorship. I certainly hope to like really see you, see you when we go the full day on October 30th. Again, gybdpodcast.com will take you straight to that resource page to register. Would love to spend a whole day with you because a half hour just isn't long enough. Um, so I look forward to seeing you there and on the next episode, of course. And until then, write powerfully, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Get Your Book Done. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about today. And if you want my help with your book, head over to christinecloser.com to learn more and get a free copy of my book, The Transformation Quadrant, which will show you how to blueprint your book in 15 minutes or less. The Get Your Book Done podcast is where the leading conversation is happening for transformational authors everywhere. And I'm grateful you tuned in.